You're listening to Peace Perspectives, a podcast produced by Nonviolence International Southeast Asia. This is a special episode featuring the launch of Nonviolence International Southeast Asia's latest publication, Artificial Intelligence, Emerging Technologies, and Lethal Autonomous Weapon Systems, Security, Moral, and Ethical Perspectives in Asia. Good day, everyone. This is Mitzi Ostero, Programs Manager of Nonviolence International Southeast Asia. I'm happy to welcome everyone to our online launching of the scoping study that Nonviolence International Southeast Asia embarked earlier this year, entitled Artificial Intelligence, Emerging Technology, and Lethal Autonomous Weapon Systems, Security, Moral, and Ethical Perspectives in Asia. Co-edited by myself with Pauline Gorospe-Savage and with our co-authors Alfredo Ferraris-Lubang, Binalakshmi Nepram, and Kazuyo Tanaka. We embarked with our partners on this scoping study to give meat to a rather least discussed region in the international fora. The paper started out looking into the dimensions of digitalization and AI in Asia. However, we have looked into more issues such as weaponization of AI and emerging technology and the rather difficult question of are we in the age of lethal autonomous weapon systems now? So the study that we put together assesses how these developments are impacting Asia from an ethics, moral and legal perspectives. It also looks into the impact, the general impact it has in Asian society. The study hopes to add to the critical debates surrounding the issues, as well as the actors and potential uh, problems that it may cause. The study is not intended to be an academic exercise, but rather to support our thinking and strategizing process in addressing issues surrounding weaponization of AI and emerging technology. And this is one of the main issues that we wanted to address and for people to read in the scoping paper. Joining us today is my co-editor, Pauline Gorospe-Savage, who will give us a few words from the editor. Pauline is our policy and research advisor at NICEA. She has worked with the Philippine government on anti-transnational crime efforts and with the Ateneo School of Governance and Peace and Conflict Resolution Program. She graduated with a BA and an MA in political science at the Ateneo de Manila University and an MA in advanced policy studies at the National Graduate Institute for Policy Studies, Japan, where she is currently completing her PhD dissertation on hybrid security institutions at GURPS. Thank you very much for that introduction, Mitzi. Um, Of course, I'm very happy to see the fruition of many months of hard work for all of us. And we, of course, have to thank our amazing contributors and reviewers whose work and insights have been extremely invaluable throughout this process. I would like to start by saying that, yes, I do believe this publication is extremely important for Asia and for the global conversation on artificial intelligence and emerging technologies. For one, it offers perspectives from regions that are understudied. Southeast Asia and South Asia, for example, are often tacked onto big power relations as either the unwilling unwitting or passive receptors of competition between powerful countries. 
and not as active participants capable of forming coalitions and partnerships with these countries and with each other and achieving their goals in this way. Second, uh, the paper illuminates areas in politics that are often overlooked. Whenever there's dialogue on security, we always look at international relations or macro-level relationships or viewpoints. We often forget that foreign policy in itself is the result of negotiations between subnational actors and that these subnational actors do wield some influence on policy making and they could be different entities or different people they can be particular government offices officials or the industry players themselves or even civil society and it's probably quite easy to dismiss the viewpoint of developing countries or civil society representatives in developed countries because it seems far-fetched to think that they will occupy themselves with AI, with emerging technologies, with these issues concerning security and defense capabilities, and so on and so forth. But as this paper has demonstrated, everyone always has a say. They just need a platform to convey that message. Which brings me to the importance of this paper. Now, we must never forget that policymaking is a multi-leveled, multifaceted exercise that involves balancing interests, concerns, and achieving certain goals, and that policies are not made in a vacuum. They're not unilaterally implemented. They're not isolated from the effects or influence of social forces. And as someone who used to work in the government, I'd say, it takes careful consideration and deliberation, often from widely opposing sides. But the goal is still to arrive at a compromise or a consensus, if that is possible. And this paper sheds light on the different sides to this debate about AI and emerging technologies. It offers different viewpoints from different countries with different contexts different security considerations, different non-security considerations and problems, and at different levels of governance from the national to the subnational level. It serves as a guide and an aid to policymaking the way it actually works, not as a singular or unitary event that concerns a few, but as a universal undertaking that has universal impact from the international, the regional, national, subnational, all the way to the individual. And as an editor, this is our goal uh, in making our, in this paper, rather. And I'm honored and happy that this paper enables us to accomplish this, to illuminate these areas that are severely understudied or neglected because it's just more uh, attractive or urgent to look at, for example, government-to-government relations. Um, I highly recommend this paper as a policy guide on AI and emerging technologies, and I'm very happy that we've been able to collaborate and to accomplish it and now to publish it and make it available for everyone.
Thank you very much, Pauline, for that inspiring words. I would now like to start the presentation of the regional perspectives. Joining us from Japan is Kazuyo Tanaka, who is currently a lecturer at Naira Women's University Secondary School. She earned her MA in Area Studies at Kyoto University. Casio has extensive experience in international project implementations and had worked in the Thai-Lao border for a period of five years. Her past experience includes teaching and lecturing in different levels and written academic and non-academic research in anthropology, specializing in the role of communications in society. She speaks and writes in Japanese, English, Lao, and Thai languages. Casio, the floor is yours. I will describe about the regional perspective in the case of China, Japan, and South Korea. And before we look into China's um, perspective, probably it is easier for us to understand wider perspective from world that there is one significant AI race between China and US in advance. And China doesn't hesitate to show that they are eager to win this AI arm race. Chinese government already represented and had a declaration by 2025, they will catch up US. And by 2030, they lead the world to be a world leader of AI. And when we look into the background, why China is highly eager to do that, There are two main factors, economical background and political background of China. Uh, for economical background, we can say that China is playing a role as uh, one of the major global exporter of the weapon, especially um, they're making a target for drone and they're uh, highly Um, developed to specify the target level of the street and identifying the target with the affordable price. Um, that's why they can make an um, economical big burst profit from it. Apart from this factor, we can also put political background of China that they have territorial dispute internally and externally. As we already know um, from the issue with their controlling Hong Kong and uh, Wales and also Tibet, and they need to control the border area of China. And also they have territorial dispute externally with Japan, Taiwan, and other countries of Southeast Asia. And um, it highly requires China to modernize the military quickly. So that's um, in line with this um, political and economic background easily we can find. And from the document and many articles I found, it's quite interesting that Chinese government have never clearly published published laws development as a plan, neither described the application of this weapon system officially. However, um, PLA, uh, it's People's Liberation Army, 
documentation already refer much about intelligence tied weapon instead. They even coined made the word of AI weapon. So we can clearly know they um, indicated they further look into the research and development in the past and folk, especially focused on developed unmanned vehicles and incorporated robotics such as drone in undersea and airport. And when we focus on China's AI governance, it's quite unique and it's much different from the case studies from Japan and South Korea. And uh, we can focus on there is a strong partnership between government, private sectors, and academic institutions. And I can say that Chinese government tried to do much effort on both three factors. For example, I can see, I can pick up one example about the development of hypersonic grind. And this partnership enabled more than 3,000 articles between institutions of military and universities. So we can obviously see that um, it enables military to use civilian AI technology more promptly than the other countries. And it will lead more cross study, uh, more case studies, more budget on it. That's why they can set goal to win a AI race so promptly. This is what I found from China's studies. So I move on to the case study of Japan. Japanese government officially, they show no plan to develop laws, though they have a capacity to develop laws. On the other hand, we have a different reality. Japan has been post-territorial dispute both from China in Southern and Russian and North from Northern. When I'm living in Japan, I often listen the news from TV every week that there's unspecified sit interfered to the territory of Japan and the Ministry of Defense tried to trace but could not this kind of news we can see often. So we have different realities. On the other hand, Japan government has a standpoint. Autonomous weapon system potentially can reduce human error. However, they found more risk. They found more security threat in case who will be responsible when we will use um, autonomous weapon system wrongly. There is no clear mention exists yet. So Japanese this government have been stressed. We need significant human involvement. Also, we need to add sufficient information in advance to understand what is defining the human control is. We are quite in hurry to specify it because it is too late if the laws will be implemented and in use in the reality. So we need some transparency about this definition. However, to accomplish to this, we need multiple compliance with international humanitarian law and also international law in advance. 
But as we already know, there are some countries who is very positive about laws and who is not positive about the laws. So Japan is forced to stand kinds of conservative standpoint to proceed in this partnership. This is what I found from Japan's perspective. Okay, so in final, I will move on to South Korea. South Korea officially opposes total bans of roads. But on the other hand, they are very severe and difficult territorial dispute with North Korea, especially in the border, which is called EMZ zone. There is actually a precursor of law already implemented. This area is one of the most heavily militarized zone, and more than one million landmines are settled already. So it is highly dangerous for the soldier for patrol. That's why South Korea, it is mandatory to have modernization of the military promptly. And South Korea had much effort to stronger the military by undertaking expanding AI capacity together cooperate with the academic institution and private sector. In 2090s, the army established AI research institution called KAIST and with the cooperation of Monwa Group and enabled AI weapons. However, this partnership is not stronger compared with the partnership I already described from the case study from China. This is what I found from the perspective from Korea. In the last, I look into the, finally, I look into the regional response from China, South Korea, and Japan. I could see some similarity between Japan and South Korea that they are both aging society and also dwelling population. So to close the military gap, we are artificially uh, oppose um, the bans of laws. However, on the other hand, we need some solution for it by using some um, weapons so on. Well, this is kind of contradiction Japan and Korea facing. However, it might conflict ethics. This is the dilemma they are facing for. Actually, from the media report, they had a questionnaire in 2018 and more than 74% of South Korea and 48% of Japan, of course, about the development of growth. Uh, compared with Japan and China, uh, Japan and South Korea, and China has larger population and also much human resources about younger generation and they're already eager to widen the opportunity for teenagers to study about the roles. Uh, Chinese government established Beijing Institute technology enables the uh, skilled student to have the special program about to make AI expert. There, there are more than 70 universities up for AI majors in domestic. So the environment which is surrounding the students are already different between China and Japan and South Korea. Okay, so this is the end of my presentation. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much for your presentation, Casio. Up next is the presentation of the perspectives 
from Southeast Asia. Fred Luwang is the regional representative of NICEA. He is also the national coordinator of the Philippine campaign to ban landmines and a convener of a number of several humanitarian disarmament campaigns. He holds a master's degree in applied conflict transformation studies. Recently, he ventured into social enterprise for persons transitioning from war to peace in the Bangsamoro. Fred, the floor is yours. Thank you. Uh, I'm really honored to be part of this publication as it is really timely, given that uh, discussions on the lethal autonomous weapon systems at the global level is ongoing. And there's also an increase in the interest of states in Southeast Asia to be part of the discussions. But this issue of lethal autonomous weapon system is not similar to a discussion where we ask the countries here in the region, would you like to acquire nuclear weapons after the World War II? It's not a similar discussion. It's not really about asking a country if they want to buy this particular weapon system or not, because it's entirely a totally different system. It is based on a number of infrastructure that should be in place first before you could have a lethal autonomous weapon systems. So in this kind of discussion, what is clearer to us is what is the situation here in the region that could actually contribute to the demand for these kinds of weapons. So we would look into each country in Southeast Asia and ask ourselves what are the conditions, what is the context in the country today that could possibly be part of the demand drivers or help out or define their positions, political positions, when the lethal autonomous weapon systems global policy would be discussed or even hopefully negotiated in the future. So if you look at the region, Southeast Asia, we have varying political structures. We have different levels of development. You could just imagine Singapore, and you could also look at, for example, Myanmar. The disparity in terms of wealth, the poorest of the poor are here, and probably one of the richest are also in the region. There's a lot of disasters natural disasters. And while we speak, a typhoon is happening here in the Philippines. There are also man-made disasters. Uh, we have ongoing armed conflicts in Southeast Asia in many countries. We have border conflicts involving the West Philippine Sea. We have maritime issues. And in the recent years, terrorism has been felt in the region. So these kinds of contexts have defined how the governments here look into, this, into these issues of lethal autonomous weapon systems. There's an increase in military spending of some states in the region. There are states in the region that are developing unmanned aerial vehicles, although it's limited along the surveillance capacity, not yet weaponized in terms of putting weapon systems inside these vehicles. But there's already that directions wherein the countries are still defined as to how strong they are based on the capacity or the strength of its military. So with this various contexts, 
it actually helps us analyze each country on how they will position themselves on the issues of lethal autonomous weapon systems. If we talk about artificial intelligence, some states might definitely welcome this new technologies improving how they would monitor their borders, how they would fight terrorism, how they would fight cybercrime, how they would probably improve their system in addressing disaster, and they would probably improve the way their systems are working in terms of managing their chain supply in their warehouses, a delivery system, and all this. And also, in addition to strong surveillance of the citizens, for example, facial recognition system would now be a new normal in the region in the coming years. But all these kinds of new things will form part of the larger weapons system we call lethal autonomous weapon systems. The question is, will the countries go towards allowing machines to decide autonomously to select their targets, search their targets, and kill their targets, or decide what actions to take on the targets? And that is crucial. And lastly, while they are trying to address all the challenges in the region, they have not come up as ASEAN, Association of Southeast Asian Nations, a common strong political position on lethal autonomous weapon systems. While they are aligning themselves in the position of the Nine Aligned Movement, which is about discussing more the issues and putting the discussions of what are the impact of laws on international humanitarian law, encouraging more discussions. But I guess there would be a limit to talking and just talking uh, without committing ourselves that we should put limits to these kinds of weapons and hopefully having this common regional position, just like decades ago, they stood strongly on a nuclear-free zone in Southeast Asia. So hopefully this kind of report would present and guide policymakers uh, to find that common position in Southeast Asia so that we will keep the region uh, safe as well as addressing the needs of people. So thank you. Thank you very much for your presentation, Fred. Our next presenter from South Asia is Ms. Bina Lakshmi Nepram. She's an indigenous scholar and human rights defender whose work focuses on deepening democracy and championing women-led peace processes and women's participation and representation in security and disarmament in Manipur, Northeast India, and South Asia. Pina's work through the years has garnered international recognition, including the Anna Politskovskaya Award in 2018, Women Have Wings Award in 2016, CNN IBN Real Heroes Award in 2011, and so much more. In 2013, the UK-based Action on Armed Violence named her one of the 100 most influential people in the world working on armed violence reduction. Bina, thank you very much for joining us. You have the floor. So first of all, let me sort of dissect what is artificial intelligence, because we talk about it a lot, but sometimes we miss the ABC and jump straight to Z. So I would like to introduce many of our listeners here that what do you mean by artificial intelligence and the connection with this autonomous weapon and how these two merger is such a threat to our lives, lives of our children, lives of our communities, 
and particular in Asia where Fred had mentioned, we are home to one of the poorest parts of the world, though an area which has been highly colonized and continues to be colonized. So from that perspective of what's happening with our lives and militarization of our lives, our spaces, we have to be really clear with that. So what we're going to do is, what is artificial intelligence? Artificial intelligence is intelligence which is demonstrated by machines, which against the intelligence of human beings or even animals. So that is what is artificial intelligence. It was founded as an academic discipline in the year 1955. And as a colleague from Japan said, more than you know, 300 or universities, you know, research papers being done on it. So what is happening in the field of AI and weapon systems? The technique of um, looking at the term AI was coined by John McCarthy, which says machines that will be capable of doing any kind of work a human being can do, you know. So that's the excitement of AI in the 50s. It went through the 60s and it went through a little bit of downturn in the 70s in terms of research. But it's a growing field of work, which uh, non-violence international Asia will not be able to stop. Neither will will CAFI, you know. So what we have to see is, but where is it that organizations like ours, groups in Asia or groups around the world can team up together is where I would like to focus. And what is happening is last year, Indian Prime Minister Modi addressed an event called Howdy Modi in Texas. And he called, uh, you know, data as the new oil of the world, the new gold of the world. And these are the data which is out there extracted from each one of us in this panel, extracted from every Facebook user or extracted from every Instagram user around the world where this data is extracted and then sort of examined literally by machines. And that that has started to sort of transform our lives, our thinking and the world. And this is what the discussion between data, artificial intelligence and weapons is going to make a lethal combination. And which is now going to lead to what is called a kind of a new arms race, a digital arms race, which we as the Samaman activists, people who love peace and people who actually work for peace every single day of our lives, such as this podcast recorded on a Sunday, you know, shows that how important it is for us to look into the issue. So just this is a little context I wanted to give to your podcast listeners. And as my colleagues from uh, Japan, as well as uh, Philippines have mentioned, now I'll focus on South Asia and what's happening there. So as I mentioned, there is a new digital arms race, which seems to be emerging around the world. And this is a sort of concern. And what is happening can be demonstrated by example. Before COVID struck the world, India, which is the world's largest democracy, was rocked by a series of protests following the passing of a very, very discriminatory, watch the United Nations Human Rights Council call, call it discriminatory, because in the first time in India's modern history, since independent India, India passed a law in which it discriminated who could be Indian citizens based on religion for the first time. So if you are any other religion, Hindu, Jains, uh, Buddhists, you could be a part of, uh, you know, be a, a citizen of India from the neighboring state if you are applying for it. But if you are a Muslim or an indigenous, then you cannot be a part of that kind of citizenry process. This was shocking to a country of, uh, which gave Mahatma Gandhi, a country which gave nonviolence and a country which 
gave yoga to the world, which gives you all peace and listeners of this podcast peace. But it sort of turned the country around in which hundreds of thousands of people, right from Manipur to uh, Tripura to Assam and later uh, New Delhi protested against this act. During that time, actually, government of India used technology and AI technology to sort of crack down on protesters in a very, very rigorous way. And so that is one thing. And then it sort of arrested so many dissenters. So you heard about Hong Kong, you heard about what's happening, but you will not have heard of this, but it is something where the AI technology and, and was used, drones were used to identify protesters. This was just a couple of months ago and led to the arrest of massive arrests that in uh, Uttar Pradesh, more than 1,000 protesters, people who dissident, were arrested based on facial recognition technology where weaponization of our life started. I'm talking more about India right now because in South Asia, India is known as the big brother. And with the rise of Prime Minister Modi in the year 2014, it transformed the way our you know, AI is used to make it lethal for, and it really started hurting the democracy of our country. So this is what happened. So let me just focus on a couple of things here. So South Asia is home to world's longest running armed conflicts. We have conflicts in northeast of India, in Manipur, the Naga Hills, and then we had conflicts in, you know, Afghanistan and Pakistan and, you know, Kashmir and all of these areas. So in South Asia, uh, Afghanistan became a focal point of where, which is known as the most heavily drawn bombed country in the whole world with more than 7,000 bombs dropped by the U.S. forces just in the year 2018. And so this is uh, what is shocking about the data that we see from South Asia, that it is home to some of the longest running armed conflicts. And as if our countries and the bodies of our people have been used as experimental sites for many of these autonomous, you know, a weapon system. And we strongly condemn this. And that's why our work is really, really important. What is ironical is Afghanistan, this country, the government has almost sort of agreed to many of the disarmament treaties. That's the irony. They bomb you and, and force you to sign some of these multilateral disarmament treaties. So that's the irony of Asia and particularly South Asia that I'm speaking about. Uh, in neighboring Pakistan has called for the preemptive ban on laws. So Pakistan that way, and then Pakistan argued for legally binding you know, CCW protocol to ban the development and use of such weapons. So different countries in South Asia has different perspective based on the study and research findings, which is now the report, uh, the report that uh, we are uh, launching uh, through this podcast. What's happening in uh, then Nepal to the Himalayan border region of Nepal? Uh, Nepal has also faced conflicts, but then it hasn't been speaking much about it. But in the 2018 uh, UN General Assembly, Nepal also called for, you know, raising concerns on this uh, lethal autonomous weapons and called for a sort of a sound regulatory framework on this. Then I will go on to what Bangladesh is saying. Bangladesh is a lot of poverty. There are more than 700,000 Rohingya refugees right now there. Um, the country is almost the verge of losing land. It's, it's, it's a mess. And, um, and so what does it, many of these South Asian countries are grappling with trying to get refugees rehabilitated, trying to, you know, uh, get people not lose their citizenship because of a lot of right-wing right government in the region. Uh, and uh, Bangladesh 
as, as a, a country in South Asia remains committed also to ensuring that the obligations at the uh, CCW is maintained as far as laws is concerned. What about Sri Lanka? Sri Lanka last year sought renewed a sort of violence where 250 people were killed in a bombing attack in, in Sri Lanka. And Sri Lanka, because of its, uh, uh, you know, history of conflict and violence, ethnic violence, which we all know, uh, it is, it's, it stands on the cusp of being both a user of laws as well as a developer. So that's where Sri Lanka stands right now. So that's a little bit of a snapshot on what's happening in the region. And as I mentioned, let me bring you back to my country, India, because it's really critical to understand in entire Asia, uh, besides Japan and China and South Korea, India is becoming a developer of laws. And let me take you through and why and how did this originate as my uh, you know, last point in this particular um, podcast. So as I mentioned, um, the rise of the Modi government in India is also the rise of the uh, emergence of lethal autonomous systems in this country. Let me put that very clearly. We have a government which is uh, what is called um, an autocratic democracy in India right now. A lot of like literally a nationalism built on Hindu nationalism where everything is about macho nationalism, you know, a nationalism where you have to have a lot of weapons. You've got to, you know, be the leader. You have to. So India is, as we all know, the second largest importer of weapons in the world. And it's also the fourth largest spender of military, uh, you know, budget. So it is something which the world needs to watch out. And we all as citizens are watching out. So, and it's very interesting how even before uh, the starting as, uh, um, uh, you know, our colleague from Japan also mentioned in terms of how universities and think tanks started developing the idea. So in India, for example, uh, think tanks, which are based in Washington, D.C., such as the Carnegie Endowment, started denilating why India needs to, uh, you know, work on this particular issue and how it's important for India. And then a Defense Research and Development Organization, DRDO in India, which is a research wing of the Minister of Defense, also announced as early as 2013, the development of robotics, you know, soldiers, how it is important. So in India, it started around 2013, 2014. And as I mentioned, uh, that um, they plan to deploy these web weapons at the border areas because India is struggling with Pakistan and China at the border, what we call the border war. So they plan to deploy there, and that's how the emergence started. But as I mentioned, when Prime Minister Modi came to power in 2014, he instituted a seven-member task force to formulate plans and strategies. So, and for the development of uh, like, like a nationalistic security and defense policy, in which AI became a very, very critical front. The task force proposed the development of artificial intelligence to deter potential threats in the region to, uh, for creating defense systems against non-state actors, and finally, for cyber defense capabilities of the government of India itself. And then, I don't know if you are aware, but every... Here, India has a, you know, defense expo and arms market. Um, because of COVID, it was held this year. But then in 2018, defense, um, you know, fair, arms fair, 
Prime Minister Modi highlighted India as a global leader in IT and said India can lead the global trend of artificial intelligence application in technology, including military technology. So, um, and India's Defense Research and Development Organization was tasked and it first autonomous weapons have been developed called Mantra UVG series, which are gun mounted vehicles. We have started here. So on one hand, India teaches yoga to the world for all of us to be peaceful, to meditate. On the other hand, it is right on developing a swarm based self, you know, you know, a healing dynamic mind development system. The mantra you, which is India's first gun mounted, uh, it's, it's a law there. And it's also developing a multi-agent robotic framework, which allow operators to issue different commands to a number of robots in a distributed and anachronistic system, as opposed to swarm robots, which is linked to a single behavior command, which the world knows. Now, my, uh, my other part of my um, research also mentioned um, the linkages, not just of what's happening in India, but the linkages with other countries. And here I'm bringing Japan, India and Japan, which may surprise many of our listeners. India and Japan are working very closely together to develop laws, unmanned gun-mounted vehicles. Right now, it's happening right now. Japan's Acquisition Technology and Logistical Agency and DRDO have you know, launched a project for doing this. So this is very, very important. Japan and India, again, I repeat, are working very closely together for the development of laws. And there's this for us working in the field of peace and disarmament is a cause of alarm. And even before laws, actually Japan and India also work together on developing, uh, you know, what is called Aadhaar, you know, which is a system which identify every citizen in India through a technology. It was Japan's telecom giant NEC who actually did that. And the amount of money, the, the, the kind of business with this uh, India-Japan relation is doing in AI is here uh, rising from 700 billion to now to 4 billion. They're aiming to have that business increase uh, to you know, 4 billion by the year 2024. So this is something which is I wanted our viewers to understand when it comes. And, and finally, India-Israel relation in AI and in laws is very, very critical. So uh, Israel and India are, you know, have um, a very, very close ties in defense and particularly after the coming of Prime Minister Modi to power. And even during COVID time, it's so interesting. They will never, I once I taught a course at Connecticut College called Women, War and Peace. And I, I read with my students a paper called Militarizing a Can of Soup. So what it does is this militarization, whether it's through AI and through our weapon, it starts with the basic thing of which human beings like normal citizens who are just, uh, uh, you know, just going about their normal life, we will never think it's militarization. And that's how India-Israel partnership in law started. In fact, it started with even during this COVID time where Israel said to uh, the uh, India's largest hospital aims, All India Institute of Medical Sciences, where it gave AI, I mean, in a sort of technology, AI technology, uh, in which an AI video-oriented voice-operated autonomous personnel, which can be installed on any mobile phone, 
of COVID-19 staff. With that app, you can have a clinical constant contact and access to patients' records without even the patient knowing that. And this data can then be passed op open to all, you know, other sort of to track the patient and what and the whatever happens with the COVID patient too. And then India has asked Israel to uh, sort of uh, in import of weapons from Israel that it should be sort of laws, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, kind of weaponry that India would like to import from Israel. So these are some of the uh, concerns that are happening. And a lot of, as I mentioned, so it is tough. It is very, very difficult at this time of rising authoritarian regimes in India, as well as in many other parts of the world, a kind of where AI has been used and misused to crack down on democracies, uh, to sort of arrest dissenters and throttle the democracy is the norm right now in, in our region. But what is also important is the resilience of uh, civil rights organizations and civil society. On the regional level, the South Asia Association for Regional Cooperation, SARC, is like a dead duck. It does nothing. So I don't even want to talk about it. We are a region which has now lost what it means to be have regional partnership. And that is now done by civil society organizations. We cannot leave it to the governments. So that's why it's so important. I'm so glad for this partnership, which is going beyond South Asia now with you all at the, uh, you know, uh, the you know, non International Southeast Asia. I mean, we love this partnership. It's so important that civil society now is, is, is the, the power that we have is what is needed now to confront our nation states and the mad rush for power, the mad rush for misusing AI, which could be used for human good into a killer machine, which could evoke this rise of a new, you know, digital warfare in this world. And this is something we will, we will unite together to resist strongly. With this words, uh, thank you. Thank you very much, Vina, for that comprehensive and very insightful uh, presentation on South Asia perspective. So, uh, on marginalization, gender discrimination, and AI, if it's not addressed at the onset, this is going to be a big contributor to the further marginalization of women and other already marginalized groups. Because in recent global studies in the tech industry, men outnumber women five to one. So having 20% of the population being represented in the development of AI and emerging technology is a problem in itself. Maybe my co-author, Bina, would like to add further to this. Absolutely. This is such a critical element and of looking at AI and, you know, what's happening with laws and impact on women. War begins in the minds of men and that's where it starts. And literally and figuratively, it begins in the minds of men. And the AI technology and its impact on weapon system is exactly the product of a world which is fueled on a fuel of, um, of colonization exploitation, a commodification. You know, every human being now is based on a binary digit, sort of digitized. Our lives have been digitized. And as Mitzi has pointed out, uh, the tech world, the, the IT world is so skewed uh, towards 
towards women. And so there is gender dimension. Just a couple of months back, I was at RightsCon, a conference which looked at digital rights and human rights. And there it was very clearly mentioned that even the excess of technology of women in IT technology, we are just 48% of the world for women who are able to access compared to women who are more access to this IT. So it's absolutely an example of how we live in a very, very patriarchal, colonial-minded world, which is fueled by nationalistic regimes now, as we are seeing in the Philippines, we're seeing this in India, we're seeing this in America, we're seeing it around the world. So I think it's really, really important that we are able to formulate this. And I have met a lot of women who are now looking at IT. So I think we got to as a solution to how do we work together to address the lethal autonomous systems, weapon systems, and how do we protect our villages, our, our communities from further militarization, weaponization, and more war and violence. I think it's really important that we look at the gender dimension of this uh, and uh, to be able to you know, build a really equitable just world. After hearing from all our presenters, writers, the scoping study has shown us the diverse positions of countries in Asia on how states and even the public intend to use AI, emerging technology, and law. The militarization of the Asian region has not been discussed as a lot of discussion had been focused on the bigger powers like China, India, Japan, and South Korea. Even the region's past as a highly colonized region is rarely referenced and looked into. This recent experience and the ongoing experiences of on armed conflicts in the region puts the intended use of weaponized AI and emerging technology, especially of the issue of lethal autonomous weapons systems, as one of primary importance. Innovations and advances in emerging technologies will definitely affect the society at large in terms of delivering public services, health, and however, weaponization of these innovations and directly adding to the development of lethal autonomous weapon systems or killer robots will have to be taken more seriously by the public and policymakers. Technology is still uncharted territory for all of us. We have not seen the full potential yet of the current development and how much it will change the world in the future, much more how it will impact the people around the world. The authors and editors of this scoping paper hope that the readers will find this report enlightening and something that they can use the information and perspectives presented as a guide as we navigate and create new policies that will address the ethical, moral, and security issues surrounding laws, AI, and emerging technology. We also hope that the readers will find the documented regional responses in the public debates very informative as states all over the world grapple with the legal governance or policy frameworks that will regulate them on a national, regional, and global level. We also hope that more members of civil society organizations look into the cross-cutting issues that will impact our society and how will these technologies impact, as my co-author had mentioned, democracy, civil rights, and human security, and how misuse threatens the very fabric of humanity.
With that, thank you very much for listening. We hope that you enjoyed the scoping paper that we have put together. Thank you. This has been Peace Perspectives, a podcast produced by Nonviolence International Southeast Asia. Follow us on Facebook, Nonviolence International Southeast Asia, and Twitter at Nonviolence Asia. Thank you for listening.